Good morning. My name's Russ Allen, and I'm the student ministries pastor here at West Shore. It is really good to be with you and to open God's word with you. We are going to be in John chapter four, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. I'm excited to share this with you. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And as you're opening there, I also wanna remind you that there is a congregational meeting coming up on June 11th at 6 p.m. And so if you're a member here, we highly encourage you to attend that. It's one way that you can participate in the life of our body. And even if you're not a member, you're still welcome to come, but you just won't be able to vote on any of our uh, family business matters. So, John chapter four, verses one through 30. says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, anyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, 
They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Have you ever had an awkward conversation? I always think of a story that my parents tell. Just after they got married, they went on a cruise. And on the cruise ship, you have to eat dinner with a random couple. And so they got to know this couple a little bit and the husband introduced himself as a cop from Boston. And yet, as they made conversation, something just, it just didn't seem right. It seemed like they were talking about two different things. Have any of you been there before? The other thing that was interesting is they started to notice things about this man, such as he, he said that he, he worked with his hands a lot, and his hands were really dirty. Um, he sort of had this rugged look. He swore a lot. And at one point, the man actually offered them drugs. <laughs> and they're thinking, what kind of a cop is this? This must be some hardcore, undercover, inner city cop from Boston. It wasn't until the end of the week that they found out that he was a carpenter, or as he would say, a cop, a carpenter from Boston. Can you imagine how awkward that conversation would have been? And when we first read this story, it seems like it has all the makings of an awkward conversation, doesn't it? It seems like they're talking about two different things. They're not on the same page. And they jump from topic to topic. They start by talking about social norms, then they jump to talking about this sort of ambiguous living water. Then Jesus randomly calls out this woman's sinful past. Then they start talking about worship on a mountain. And it ends with Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah. And this woman goes and tells everybody about it. I mean, we have to scratch our heads and ask, what is going on here? What is this really about? What I would propose to you this morning is that the apparent randomness of this conversation is intended to capture our attention and have us ask those very questions. Because what we'll find is that this conversation is not as random or as awkward as it first appears. Just the opposite, actually. In fact, it's so purposeful that in it, Jesus is quite literally speaking to you. That you might reach the same conclusion as this woman that God, in Christ Jesus, restores us to true worship. God, in Christ Jesus, restores us to true worship.
Now, whenever we read the Bible, it's important for us to first understand the context, the background info needed to bring out the meaning of the text. And as it turns out, context is especially important in this passage because John mentions some of it himself. Look at verses three through five. John specifically mentions not only that Jesus is in Samaria, but that he, has a, that he is at a town named Sychar. And not just that, but he is in a field that Jacob possessed and in which Jacob dug a well. This is exactly where Jesus is. But why all the details? Well, because there is a rich background here that needs unpacking. The first thing to know is that the town of Sychar used to be called Shechem. Anyone reading this story during the time of John's writing would have understood this. And Shechem has ancient origins. In fact, we need to go all the way back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 12 to read when Shechem is first mentioned. Shechem is the place where God first appeared to Abraham after he entered the promised land. In Genesis 35, we read it's where Abraham's grandson, Jacob, buried his family's images of foreign gods and commits himself fully to the true and living God. He builds an altar here. And evidently, he also dug a well. In Deuteronomy 27, it's in Shechem, specifically Mount Gerizim, which is the mountain that's referenced in our story, where the tribes of Israel, led by Moses, receive the list of blessings and curses of God's covenant as they enter the promised land. That they must forsake their idols if they want to receive his blessing. Shechem, Sychar, is the very ground where God revealed himself as the true God, where he called his people to forsake their idols and worship him. This, this is where Jesus is. But it's only half of the history. In the centuries that followed, Israel returned again and again and again to their idols. It was in Shechem that a group of Israelites married the women of foreign invaders and created their own false religion. These people became known as the Samaritans. They were a blot on the history of Israel. They desecrated the land of Shechem, Sychar, the land of promise, the land of Abraham, Jacob, and Moses. So you can imagine the hatred that true Israelites had towards these Samaritans. Traitors, half-breeds, they called them. Unclean, idolaters, and adulterers. In fact, 
Jews would not even enter the land of Samaria, lest they become unclean themselves. Yet here, in John chapter 4, verse 4, it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. He could take the same path that all Jewish people took when they went from Judea to Galilee. In fact, there were actually two paths that he could have taken, one to the east and one to the west. But this text says that he had to pass through. Our only conclusion is that it wasn't geography that required Jesus to come here, but a messianic mission. I would disagree with pastors and theologians who claim that Jesus is doing this just to make some social statement about women and ethnic minorities. No, when we understand this story correctly, we see that Jesus is not merely making a social statement, but rather a gospel proclamation. That the promise-keeping Savior God of Abraham, of Jacob, of Moses, is here to redeem Shechem and all people whose story is the same as theirs. This story is where worshipers of idols meet the true God of the universe face to face. See, in this seemingly awkward conversation, Jesus and this woman were really talking about one thing, worship. He knew it, and I believe that she knew it too. Did you see how quickly she turned the conversation to worship in verse 20? It's because that's what they had already been talking about. I want you to know today that you are the woman in this story. If you're here with us today and you've never had a real encounter with Jesus, I want you to see that he has come on a mission for you. If you've already given your life to Jesus, I want you to be reminded that he came on a mission for you. Now to this, you might say, I think I can hardly relate to a Samaritan woman. I mean, there are some serious demographic and geographic obstacles here. I don't have her history of idolatry. I'm not seen as a second-class citizen. I've never worshipped another god or had an idol. And if that's where your thoughts go, then I would just tell you that you're missing it. You're missing the beauty here. See, Jesus wants us to realize that this woman is not a false worshiper because of her family history or because of the mountain or altar she goes to. 
It's not even because she's a Samaritan. It's because she's human and she has a broken heart, as do you and I. Theologian John Calvin once said this, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. See, each of us has a heart that is made for God, that's seeking ultimate satisfaction that can only be found in him. We were made to worship, to devote all of our heart and mind toward the God who created us. And our hearts can't help but worship. Yet this is the brokenness of our humanity, that we, like the Samaritans and the Israelites and every other human who has ever lived, except for one, put other people and things as the truest object of our worship. See, what this Samaritan woman really worshiped was relational intimacy. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Her heart so desperately wanted this relational intimacy that only God can give that she was willing to go from one man to the next, to the next, to the next in order to find it. Yes, our hearts are idol factories. So let me ask you, and I wanna convey all the gentleness of Jesus here. What do you worship? Would you search your heart this morning? Because when I examine my own heart and I look at our society, there is a seemingly endless list of possibilities. And here are just a few of them. Physical pleasure, relational intimacy, worldly success, power, comfort, status, happiness, physical appearance, family, intellect, the list could go on and on. But I realize some of you might be asking, well, how do I know if something's an idol in my life? And I think that's a very good and important question for us to consider. So here are four biblical indicators. Number one, look at what you sacrifice for. See, people always sacrifice for what they worship. What are the things you are making sacrifices for? I'm not saying that you shouldn't sacrifice for things like your family or your job. I'm just saying that those things might be the first to become idols if you let them. But let me also ask this. Are you sacrificing more for your job or your sport or anything else than you are for God? Are your greatest sacrifices made for him 
or for someone or something else? Where do you put your money? What takes up your time? What occupies your thoughts? Number two, look at ungodly behavioral patterns. When your desire for something causes you to act in unwise, ungodly, or blatantly sinful ways, then it has probably become an idol. Look at the Samaritan woman. Her worship of relational intimacy resulted in her becoming an adulterer. Perhaps something like this is true in your life. Does your desire for physical pleasure result in patterns of sexual immorality? Does your desire for power or success result in you neglecting your family? Number three, look at what would cause you the most pain if you lost it. These are the things that could be or could become idols in your life. Now, let me be clear again. We can and we should have deep emotional attachment to people and things in this life. After all, we're relational beings. However, if there is something or someone in our life that we esteem so highly to the point that we would despair of life if we lost them, that person or thing may be an idol. The Psalms show us that this sort of esteem and attachment should be reserved for God himself. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, says the psalmist in chapter 73. Number four, look at the persistent advice and warnings of godly family, friends, and pastors in your life. See, sometimes we're blind to our own idols. This is why the Bible urges us to meet with one another regularly, to gently correct one another and stir one another's hearts to the Lord. Maybe that means you join a life group or a Bible study. You give people permission to speak directly to your heart. Our sinful nature inclines us to false worship, to the worship of idols. But we can't just stop with seeing our idols. No, we also have to see through them, to see their true nature, to know that they are ultimately lifeless and unable to give us what we truly need. No one or nothing else in this world is supposed to be the truest object of our worship. David Foster Wallace was a well-known writer. He was a self-proclaimed atheist. Several years ago, he delivered a commencement speech at a liberal arts college, and I want to read a portion of it to you. He says, here's something else that's weird but true. 
In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Sadly, it was only several years after delivering this speech that David Foster Wallace took his own life. Shows us that idols promise satisfaction, but never truly provide it. While God says, seek and you will find, idols have us searching and never finding. They keep us wanting more and more and more, like a fire that never goes out. That sounds like hell, doesn't it? And I mean that quite literally. It seems appropriate that Jesus' most common description of hell is a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I can't think of a more fitting image of someone experiencing ultimate dissatisfaction. Idols do not satisfy, just the opposite. When Jesus meets this Samaritan woman, he undoubtedly has Jeremiah chapter two, verses 11 through 13 in mind. Now keep in mind that this was written 600 years before this story. And here's what it says. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns or wells for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And here, God is again in Jesus offering this living water. But some of you might be saying, Russ, I may not worship Jesus, but I don't feel unsatisfied. 
In fact, my life is pretty great. Let me respond to that by asking a question. What if you lost everything? Like Job, who or what would you have to turn to? See, every idol can be taken away the snap of a finger. That's how fickle, frail, and powerless they are. None of the men that this woman went to could be for her what she truly needed. She was drawing from a well that was cracked and broken, the same way that her heart was cracked and broken. Before she needed an earthly husband, she needed a true and better ultimate husband. The only one who could give her what she really needs. The only one who can ultimately satisfy her. Yet despite all of her brokenness, here Jesus is. He had to pass through here. He had to see her. Now I need to confess, there's something I didn't tell you earlier about the context for this story because I wanted to save it for now. You see, there's another connection to the family of Abraham and Moses. Abraham's son, Isaac, his grandson, Jacob, as well as Moses, all first met their wives at wells. In verse 12, the woman curiously asks, are you greater than our father, Jacob? And of course, the answer is yes. Here's the groom, the true husband, come for his bride, the church, made up of false worshipers who turn their hearts to him day by day by day. See, what we most need is not God to send a prophet to settle our arguments as this woman assumed in verse 19. No, we need God to send his son to satisfy our hearts. Like this woman, Jesus has met you here this morning with purpose and grace. Will you turn from your idols today? See the God of the universe face to face? Verse 26, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah, the Christ, God in the flesh, to worship him above all else. Listen to the lyrics of this spoken word poem by Jefferson Bethke. He says, where we exchanged ourselves for God, thinking we could be him, he exchanged himself for us, absorbing all our sin. God, God put on flesh, and do you see how we treated him? The ultimate war veteran, because he was killed for our freedom. Nonetheless, he was thinking of you and me with every whip that beat him. And to think he did that knowing full well, we'd say, nah, 
we don't really need him. But like a father, he couldn't bear his children to not be free. So he thought up that tree, paid our fee for specks of dirt like you and me. So my plea is let him restore his proper place. I promise you, he loves you right now. Just trust in his grace. Because before I leave, I'll leave you with this. What of those other things you worship took nails in their wrists? Or how about when was the last time money or sex forgave you? When's the last time your boyfriend set you free from all you're enslaved to? What else is there that died so you could be made new? Or when's the last time the world promised satisfaction and actually came through? Through Jesus' perfect life, his bloody death, and his miraculous resurrection, you have been freed from all the wrongs you have ever committed against him, including your false worship. Now, we can worship God truly in spirit and truth, as Jesus says in verse 23. This means that we have deep, heartfelt devotion through the Holy Spirit directed at the right object. That the one and only God who demands our worship is the same God who sacrificed himself for us. That's truth and spirit, spirit and truth. So now what? Well, the series that we are studying this summer is called People of Faith. And we've learned about some of the giants of our faith, some of the people that we naturally gravitate towards. But I would have you look today at this woman. No name recognition. In fact, her name isn't even recorded here. Yet she is a person of faith. Read verses 28 and 29. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Did you catch that? She left her water jar. There's a reason that that detail was mentioned. She was able to leave her jar of water because Jesus had already given her living water. Will you leave your jar of water here this morning and receive the living water of Jesus Christ? Water that will always satisfy? Maybe that means there is quite literally an idol that you need to lay down something that you need to give up or stop doing. But for many of us, maybe it means thinking of the people and things in this world that mean the most to you and offering them up to God in prayer. Say something like this. Father, you, you know how much I love my wife, my husband, my kids, 
my job, my house. And I want to cling so tightly to them. But if it will glorify you the most, then you can take them because they are not truly mine. They're yours. Do this daily. Surrender them to God. And trust that if he takes them, then he will be your satisfaction. And if he doesn't, then you will see them clearly for what they truly are. Gifts. And your enjoyment of them will be immeasurably greater than it was before. And after you surrender your idols, then go away into town and tell everyone that you have found living water, that God in Christ Jesus restores us to true worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for meeting us here this morning. Same way that Jesus met this Samaritan woman with purpose and grace. Lord, you know our hearts. You know our brokenness. It's not hard to see that. How easy it is for us to cling to other things that can never truly satisfy us. But thank you for meeting us Thank you for providing a way for us back to you through Jesus, through faith in him and his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. Father, thank you that you first loved us so that we might love you, that we might restore you to your proper place, first in our lives, first in our hearts. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.